please do turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, which we read earlier in our central thought and the verse that we shall look at and then jump away from is here in verse 5, a well-known verse, a lovely verse, a comforting verse, but one which contains such truth for us. Every word, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Well, I want to consider this really in a, a single study tonight. And my subject is words really do matter. And we shall consider this in a number of ways. We tend to think of the book of Proverbs as being only the writings and the sayings, the thousands of Proverbs of King Solomon. But chapter 30 is entitled The Words of Aga, and chapter 31, which speaks of the virtuous woman, is the King Lemuel. We don't know too much about these, so I dare say it doesn't really matter because the Word of God only tells us what we need to know. But Aga, in chapter 30, was a philosopher. He was a thinker. We should all be thinkers, and we shall think tonight of some of his learnings, some of the things which he concluded. Well, we read here, the Word of God is pure. The word means flawless, not one mistake. No fracture, no break, absolutely error-free. That's very important. That's what I want to really think about in a number of respects tonight. Why is the word of God pure? Because God is pure. And because everything that comes from him must be pure. If a fountain has got some contamination in it, the water that comes from it won't be pure, but God is pure, and so his words must be pure, flawless, without mistake. Well, how does God communicate to us? This is an important question, and many go astray here. The Lord mostly and primarily communicates to us with words. Now, I know you might say Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And that's wonderful and it's true, but it's what we might call secondary, inferior revelation from God. We cannot understand about sin. We cannot understand about the Saviour. We can't understand about how to find God through the trees, through the flowers, <coughs> through the birds. Beautiful though they are, they reveal something of God. They show us he's a God of beauty and order. He's a God who designs everything richly for us to enjoy. But we can't understand the incarnation through looking at a tree. We can understand that God is there and he exists. <laughs> And the evidence for him is so clear for all to see. These things cannot be an accident, but words, words really do matter. The word of God is pure. 
And it's through his words, what comes from the lips of Christ and what comes through the pens of those who are inspired by the Holy Spirit that we understand these deeper and necessary things. You don't need to turn to it. Matthew 4, 4 famously says, man shall not live by bread alone. We're not just animals that have food, physical food, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our souls, they thrive, they need, they are sustained, they're developed, they grow through the words of God. And those must be pure words. Pure words are spiritual food, day and night is to be the word of God. This is what we're to live by, literally. That's why we make such a big thing of the word of God. We thought last Lord's Day morning of how God's word works inside us, layer upon layer, line upon line. But it's critical to establish that God's word must be pure, it must be preserved, and it must feed our souls. So some questions that I hope to answer from these verses tonight and a few others. Do words really matter? Does it matter what we say and what we read? Does the translation of the Bible that we use, does that matter? Do the words that we use in worship to God, do they matter? What about the words we use to one another? Well, the answer, of course, is yes to all those questions. And I think we can prove that from these verses and one or two others. So I want to do three things very briefly tonight. Look at the first six verses, these words of Agar. Then consider how it covers it here, that God's word has been, will be and must be preserved, kept, untouched and then thirdly the importance if we have time of words in the Christian life so the words of Agar the lesson that we take from this in this first heading is revelation is essential we cannot feel God we cannot touch him we don't learn about God through feelings or through sight. No, <coughs> words are essential. That's what we're going to learn here. So who was Agar? Well, we don't really know too much. All that we know is contained in verse 1. The words of Agar, we know his father's name, and we know two of his followers, Ithiel and Eucal. If you look at the description of the words here it seems he was a man who was an Arab from near to Babylon and he was probably a nomad traveling through the desert towards Babylon but we don't know much more about him but he's a thinker and that's important why does the word of God think it necessary to record and tell us virtually nothing about this man because his conclusions in life are so appropriate for us today. His conclusions, which are succinctly put in this chapter, and that's all we have from him, they're so true to life, 
And if you've not discovered what he's discovered, well, you might make a discovery this evening. Well, his two followers, their names, Ithiel and Eucal, they seem quite arrogant. The first, Ithiel, means God is with me. Seems quite proud. And when you look at what he says to his followers, it seems like Agur has learned humility and his followers haven't. Eucal means I am strong. Again, another quite proud thing to say. And that forms a bit of a contrast when we come to verse 2 and we begin to get into his thinking. This is what he says. This is such clear thinking about life. He says, Agur, surely I am more stupid. He's a philosopher. There are those today that follow one quite famous philosopher. I won't mention his name, you might be distracted. But he's well followed across the world. He seems to be moving towards Christian things. But even as a philosopher who had a following, Agur says, Do you know, I'm more stupid than any man. I'm just, I'm just an ordinary human being. And do you know what I know? I don't know because I've got great understanding and because I'm a wise and I'm a clever man. No, I didn't learn it because I found the secret, because I solved the Rubik's Cube, as it were, of life. No, I didn't learn it. Verse 3, I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. I've not had some special revelation to me. I don't have direct access to God's revealed will he had to reveal it to me is what he's going to argue he's conscious of a great mystery I neither learned nor have the knowledge of the holy I'm just an ordinary human being I need God to speak to me verse 4 he goes on he starts to ask some questions and he's going to look at nature to prove that there is the necessity of revelation. He says, who has ascended or gone up into heaven? Or who's come down? He said, I've not gone to heaven and had some special revelation. He then says, who's gathered the wind that we can't even see in his fists? He's beginning to think about God who is supremely powerful. Just think of that as a picture, gathering all the winds of the world in his fists. We thought about God's hands and fingers and his arm, but his fists. I can't think of another verse that mentions the fists of God, who has gathered the wind in his fist. That's how powerful this God is. Hagar is saying, Do you know, I'm so infinitesimally small compared to this omnipotent God. He uses another illustration. Who has bound the waters, all the oceans of the earth, who has bound them in a coat? Who's put all the water together in some clothes, conveying that he is in total control of even the oceans? Who has established all the ends of the earth speaking 
of his presence. His all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, and his omnipresence. Well, this is a, a grand verse. It's speaking about the greatness of our God, his power, his knowledge, his presence, his sovereignty. And then, this is where I want to hesitate, or rather pause for a while. What is his name? This great God, who does all these incredible things, what is his name? We can't, as feeble human beings, we can't understand God. We can't work him out. He must reveal himself to us. Well, what is his name? We call God lots of names. There are well over a hundred names in the word of God. We call him the self-existent one. That's what Jehovah means in a few words. The self-existing one. The one that doesn't need me and you. He is self-sufficient, self-existing. We call him Shaddai, powerful. El, strong. El Shaddai, the strong, powerful one. We say that he is an awful being. That means he's full of awe. And we should be full of awe in knowing him. We describe him as merciful and glorious. These are just words. They're so inadequate to try to understand what is his name. How can we possibly describe God? In just a few words, what's his name? Well, he has many names, and even those names are inadequate. But look at this here, and this is appropriate for this time of year. And what is his son's name? Isn't that interesting? That would have been a complete shock to Jewish readers. God has a son? What is his son's name? This is revealing that there is God the Father and he has a son. It's a direct reference to the coming Christ, to the creator, the one who is all-powerful over creation and to the saviour. What is his name, God the Father? What is his son's name? If you can tell, he can't work out God the Father, God the Son. God had to show him. God had to reveal it to him. So Agar is concluding, I'm a great philosopher. You, my followers, my fan base, as they call it today. No, no, don't lift me up. That's what human nature always does. Puts men and women on a pedestal. And Agar, as I believe, a believer in God, who has a great understanding, he says, no, I'm a brutish stupid, foolish, silly man. But God has made me wise because he's revealed himself to me. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Well, that's really just background. Now we come to this grand, grand verse. Every word of God is pure. What a comforting verse. It's Mentioned in a different form in the Psalms. We might turn to that shortly. 
But what does this say about God's word? God's word is self-commending. When you read God's word, I remember doing this as a teenager who thought he was a Christian up until the age of 16, and suddenly God's word spoke, and it commended itself, and it made sense, and I heard not audibly, God speaking to me. Every word of God is pure. It's self-commending. It's self-authenticating. When we read it, it fits everything we see of the world and of our own poor selves. God's word describes the world and myself so accurately, so correctly. And the word of God is self-sufficient. When you put a seed into the ground, you don't really do anything to it. It is just perfectly formed. Everything within it is complete and entire. The word of God. What is the word of God? God's word is himself revealed. Why do we need God's word? Why do we make so much of it? Because it is God. God is his word. His word is God. And as this verse tells us, whoever finds this word and whoever trusts in it, it will be like a shield to them. A shield from lies, a shield from Satan, a shield from all our enemies, because when we believe the word of God and know its truth, which it is, it will protect and it will preserve us. I want to move to a slightly different theme, and it's covered in verse 6. And this is an important additional theme. Every word of God is pure. Well, we believe in something called the doctrine of the preservation of God's word. This is something that's much under attack. God's word. This word here in verse 5 alone is proof that God's word doesn't change. He doesn't allow it to evolve. We live in such an evolutionary dominated world and humanistic thinking says that the world gets better and better and better. But is that true with God's word? Does God's word change? And does it evolve over time? Well, we don't believe it does, because if it does, it wasn't perfect. It was incomplete, and it was less than perfect once. But no, we believe it is preserved. So I want to just think about this for a few minutes. Has the Bible passed down to us? in its purest form. Now we have people here tonight whose mother tongue is different to English. Of course, there's so many translations of the Word of God and that's why the Trinitarian Bible Society does such a valiant work to try to get to the best possible texts and to translate them in to the local tongue. Not an easy task where language is constantly shifting but he makes a significant statement here in verse 6 and this is proof alone 
that the word of God is preserved. Here says Aga. This is a great conclusion for an Arabian man that we know nothing about other than this chapter. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. Now that's an interesting verse. You can look back to Deuteronomy 4.2 if you want to. I'm sure you'll know that verse. There is a solemn warning, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. So this is a principle that goes throughout God's word. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Don't add to it, don't take away from it. Don't turn to it now, but the third to last verse in God's word. It's as though it's bookended. Proverbs 30 in the middle. Don't add to God's word Deuteronomy in the first five books. Revelation at the end. God's word is complete. Don't take from it. Don't add to it. And as it says in the book of Revelation 22, if you do, there is a severe <coughs> and solemn warning. Well, that's, of course, what the cults do, isn't it? Joseph Smith has his dream. Most of the cults, they believe something of the word of God. But they've added to it, or they've replaced it, or they've adapted it. That's the evolution of the cults across the world. What about the Kansas City Prophets, 1980, in America? There was a man called Paul Kane and a number of other followers. And they claimed that they had direct words of revelation from God, saying things that were completely at odds, 180 degrees, from God's word. The Kansas City Prophets, and out of that, spawned the large and growing and very profitable work of the new word, the new word, Revelation churches and the vineyard churches, as John Wimber brought it over here, which added new revelation month after month after month. That's exactly what Agar was warning about. Don't add to the word of God. God's word is complete. Now let's just look at a couple of other verses. Go back to Psalm 12. Psalm 12 and verses 6 and 7. This is a very similar verse to the one that we're looking at. Psalm 12 and verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Same word, flawless, but explains even more graphically. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified, tested, proven seven times. God's word has proven itself to be pure, perfect, flawless. Every prophecy has been kept. The coming of the Messiah was exactly as prophesied. It's been proven and tested by all who followed it. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them. 
O Lord, God is going to keep his own word. Now look at this. Thou shalt preserve them, keep them. From this generation, whoever wrote Psalm 12, probably King David, up until now, God will keep his word. It won't be added to. There won't be new prophets who add to the word of God. Once the word of God was completed, which it is, it is now finished. It doesn't need to be added to or taken away. Perhaps one more verse. Psalm 119 and verse 89. Psalm 119 and verse 89. This perhaps settles the matter. Excuse the pun. Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God has spoken from heaven. This wasn't decided on earth by man. No, God settled, fixed his word forever. And we're not to change it at all. So this is the preservation of God's word. We've thought of the necessity of revelation. And then we've thought of the preservation of God's word. Now I want to give you one example of how this is important. Please turn to Philippians and chapter 2. We won't look at many other verses, but Philippians and chapter 2. And perhaps I read from verse 5. Very well-known, beautiful, highly significant verses speaking of Christ becoming man. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, God the Father, God the Son, co-equal with the Holy Spirit. And here's the important verse. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. This is the translation which was made in 1526 by William Tyndale, coming up for 500 years ago. He's translating a word which is much disputed and quite difficult to translate called kenosis. And when you look at nearly every other form of English language Bible, including the ESV, the NASB, they translate verse 7 very differently. They say, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself in some other translations. And there's immediately a great problem there. Even the Amplified Version, which we know isn't really a translation, it's a paraphrase, acknowledges the problem. It says this, He emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity. You see, the majority of English translations deviate from this wonderful translation. He made himself, here's Christ, co-equal with the Father, 
and he voluntarily makes him, he's still God, makes himself of no reputation. He didn't empty himself. If you empty a cup, there's nothing in it. It's a very significantly different translation. The first version of the New King James followed that. Then they had to correct it. In the second edition, is this important? Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Well, when it comes to the person of Christ, his deity, whether he was just a man or whether he was the God-man, that goes to the heart, the very heart of our faith. Did he become God after he rose from the dead? No. Did he cease to be God after he died on the cross? No. He was God. He remained God. He is God. But the way we explain it is this. Now, before we come to that, I just mentioned by the way, that the New World Translation, and you know that that's the version used by the Jehovah's Witnesses, uses that same poor translation, he emptied himself, alarm bell. If that's the translation they have in the New World Version, and they don't believe that Christ was the Son of God, we should be very concerned if a translation has he emptied himself. Well, let's come back to what this says. It's important to us because Christ is the Son of God. Spurgeon said this on this subject. Christ emptied himself of all honour, of all his glory, ascribed glory, of all his majesty, and of all the reverence that was to be paid to him, but not his deity. He was God. He remained God. So you see, the passage really interprets for us. If you look in verse 8, he found himself, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, he chose voluntarily to become a servant. Well, these are Wonderful and important things. But let's come to our third topic tonight as we go back to Proverbs chapter 30. The words of God are pure, pure, flawless. What's the application to us in the Christian life? It's easy to look at this in abstract and say, yes, God's word is pure. There's no mistakes. That's great. I can rely on it. But you know, if our, if our God gives us pure words, shouldn't our words be pure? And there's two respects that we need to think about this. Words that we use, they're either to God or they're to one another. So what about our words that we use to God? Do they need to be carefully chosen? Yes. What happens if they're just repetitive and we say the same things again and again and again in a sort of set series of prayers where the heart goes far from our God well that wouldn't work that would be insincere now a final verse 
to turn to. Look at Amos. I wonder if you've looked at this verse before. Amos and chapter 5. Hosea and then Amos chapter 5. The people of God had turned away. They had fallen and into idolatry. And the prophet urges them to return. And he says about their worship, in verse 21, Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. He's saying your worship stinks. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. And here's the key verse. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. You're chanting, you're singing, you're trying to worship me. But take it away. Verse 23, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. That was probably a stringed instrument. Take it away. Your worship is disgusting. This is the Lord God speaking through Amos. Why? Because it was insincere worship. Because it was repetitive worship. Because the heart wasn't in it. And so he says, take away that din. Take away that noise which just keeps going round and round. And take away your chants and your repetitive sayings. The words that we use in worship are vitally, vitally important. But just one more application. What about what we say to one another? Does that matter? Can we say, you know what I'm like. I'm just a direct person. I say it as it is. I just come out with it. And I pick up the pieces afterwards. I apologise if I've been a bit too forthright. No. That's not the words of a Christian. Don't need to turn to it, but James chapter 3. Dear old Pastor James, with his camel knees, because he prayed so much as a pastor for his people. And he says in James chapter 3, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. If you want to control your body, your life, your words, are how you control the rest of your life. Words are important. They really do matter in a believer's life. We must choose them very well. And I think we've had to learn this in the last two decades. When you write words... You need to choose them even more carefully because people don't hear your intonation. Sometimes I read texts or messages on some of our groups. and It's good to have these, it's efficient. But sometimes they're abrupt. They don't consider other people. They don't consider the impact we have. Do this, do that. No, our words must be pure, thoughtful, carefully chosen. It's lovely sometimes to see in a church like this, and I see it from time to time, somebody said something they didn't mean to. It came out the wrong way. 
And quickly they say, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean that. I, I meant this. And it's dealt with. It's done. It's put behind. It's not swept under the carpet. It's got rid of completely. And that's good. But let's choose our words carefully. They are a mark of the believer's inner life. Words matter. They really do. And when we say them wrong and they come out wrong, we put them right as quick as we can. And most other humble believers will take that straight away and will accept it wasn't as intended. So three things tonight. The necessity of revelation. Agar says, I can't find God. He has to reveal himself to me and he has with his pure word. Secondly, we've thought of how God's word is preserved. It's settled in heaven and it does matter which translation we use. We try to get the best, accurate, theologically correct translation. And then thirdly, our words in worship and in speech. If God's words are pure, then so should our words be pure. And we should put them as carefully as we possibly can. Let's close.